We'll be in Nehemiah chapter 10 this morning. So, turn in your Bibles there to Nehemiah chapter 10. If you get to the book of Psalms, you've gone too far. Turn to the left. In Nehemiah chapter 10. Warren Wearsby recounts the story of a man who was in a certain church, and he ended every single one of his prayers something to the tune of this. And Lord, clean the cobwebs out of my life. Clean the cobwebs out of my life, Lord. One of the members of the church, another one, became weary of hearing this same, what he surmised to be insincere request week after week after week because he saw no change in the parishioner's life. So then he heard that man praying, Lord, clean out the cobwebs of my life. The man interrupted with, and while you're at it, Lord, kill the spider. If we're honest with ourselves, I believe we can probably all identify with both of those men in the story. On one hand, we have experienced the sincere desire to honor God after we've, we've seen his cleansing work and the powerful hand of God unleashed in a particular situation or season of life. We're motivated, we're eager to be different to change things. We can set lofty goals and we imagine a future beyond our current circumstances, beyond our current woes, beyond the frustrations that we've been living in. And this is all good and well. It's even inspiring and notable until the glow of that experience fades and we find ourselves exactly back in that same spot where we were before we ever had that mountaintop experience. Or even worse, we fall further behind where we were until we experience another whirlwind moment and we begin that cycle all over again. And the outside eye can look at this up and down and this up and down and they can observe that cyclical pattern. And they look at that with skepticism, caution, and maybe eventually, over time, a little disdain. All pride aside, and we fall into prideful territory whenever we start making judgments about others and what's going on in their heart, but we've most likely all been the observer and that second man in the story as well. I use that illustration as, as an example to get our attention and to help us ask this question of how do we move forward after we have a time of growth and excitement and wow, God's really been working or I've been brought under great conviction for some things that weren't lined up with God's truth and that weren't lined up with God's will for my life. And so I'm experiencing that. Where do I go from here, How do I move forward from the mountaintop experiences through times of great victory and progress? 
And how do I avoid the erratic ups and downs and the classic pitfalls of mountaintop follow right by a, victor, uh, a, a valley, so to speak? As we look at Nehemiah chapter 10, I want us to look at this and I want us to walk away with some principles to produce balance within our heart. Principles that will help us find balance and help us to move forward in God's plans and agenda and help us avoid being stuck, that stuck cycle of, this is great, wonderful, I'm going to change everything and I'm going to do it all and I'm going to live that life that you have for me. And then Monday comes around, right? And and then Sunday comes again. Oh, that, that sermon was awesome, Pastor. I love you. Man, you, you were just on fire. And then the church ride home, I lose my temper on my kids. Or Just that stuck cycle. How do we do that? Well, I believe there are principles as we see uh, in the whole congregation of Israel gathering together. In the book of Nehemiah, we've seen God work in big mighty ways. In fact, the last time we were together in this book, looking at, at Nehemiah chapter 9, we were kind of looking at principles for how to live in a set of circumstances like none other. Because God was working in the nation of Israel, and they were walking through some things they had never walked through before. But God was faithful, and we saw the principles uh, that were offered there for us. And now it's, it's in, in hindsight of, of God working in this massive way. He's already built the wall and restoring the, the glory to Jerusalem because they've rebuilt that wall under miraculous, uh, very hard conditions. We've been through all that. We've been through multiple stages of spiritual reform and spiritual uh, renewal. And now it seems as if it all comes together to this point, uh, to this spiritual zenith, this apex of the book in chapter 10. So let's look and see what the nation of Israel decided that they should do in the wake of this spiritual awakening. What do we do next? We'll look at chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Now those who placed their seal on the document were Nehemiah the governor, and then we get through a bunch of lists, and we're going to see a bunch of different people. But what we find out, and, and we can go down to chap, uh, in that chapter to verse 29, and we'll see. So they're signing a document. That's what we picked up in verse 1. All these people are gathering together. They're writing their names down collectively in a communal statement. And what did they do? Chapter 10, verse 29 says, These joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his ordinances and his statutes. What did the nation of Israel do here? Well, they, they came together and they decided to enter into this covenantal agreement of sorts, and it was one of curse and an oath that they were doing. Kind of the idea, and, and you and I certainly have probably never done this after, you know, a, a cleansing time where, you know, our life just really gets back on, on track. And for this, it, for us, it might look like, Lord, I will never, ever, maybe, let's say, the uh, Lord's been working in our heart, and maybe I had been struggling with, 
gluttony. I mean, this isn't personal experience at all, all right? But gluttony, where I would just eat anything and everything all to my heart's content and beyond and finding my satisfaction in this food rather than, than my walk with God. And I have this cleansing time where God shows me my need to walk and to rest in him. And I, I experience that, and it's exciting. And literally those shackles that were around my wrist being bound to that substance, that thing, it's gone because I'm walking in the freedom of what Jesus Christ has afforded me. And that's wonderful and exciting. And there are times where in that, we say, I never want this feeling to go from me. In fact, Lord, I vow to never ever touch a piece of pizza again in my life. And my wife and my kids say, ha ha, yeah, right. But in the emotional high of it, in my sincere fervor, my sincere desire to want to honor to God and experience the, the afterglow of this, of what God has been doing. We enter into these statements, these I will statements that, as we read in the book of Numbers, can get us into trouble, uh, a little bit. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go. And so this is what the nation of Israel effectively did. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're going to look at this and we're going to look at the principles behind it. And, and the, it's not all bad what they've done here. And in fact, there's some things that are very beneficial and that really help do bring us balance with, uh, that, that, that teach us to move beyond the I will statements, those vows, the oaths that we might be tempted to take so that we can remain in that self-will kind of like we were talking about in our adult Sunday school class today. <clears throat> and the first principle is this. After these moments of, of heart change, uh, we see here first that heart change was demonstrated as a community. <clears throat> and I want us to look at the importance of community, meaning corporate, the people that we are with, We'll already make the application walking away. The nation of Israel was a chosen nation of God. They were by birthright into that, and God worked within that. But God gave them by that birthright those relationships and the connections, and that was to all point everybody back to their walk with God. Today, we're not looking at national relationships like that at all. We go beyond nationality, and we have the body of Christ. Now that is all of those who were redeemed, who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. That is a worldwide universal body. But then we're also sitting here in Menominee Falls at the moment, aren't we? We're sitting in the context of a local body, a local church, as we describe it. This is God's children that we have all committed to one another. And our relationship to one another is crucial and key, as we move forward in times of spiritual victory, we need one another, and God has gifted us one another as part of his plans for spiritual growth and spiritual victory. 
Now, as we look at this idea of community and brethrenhood, brotherhood, that is expressed here in this passage, the first thing that I want to point out is that there are a bunch of names given in this passage. And all of these guys are leaderships, are, are in leadership within the nation of Israel. And so I want to make this point for us. If you have an outline, you can fill it in here. God first provides through the order and structure of godly leadership. God provides through the order and structure of godly leadership. We see that here in the passage. It starts, now those who, you know, that are making this oath that they're, they're, hey, this is exciting. Let's write this down. All right, who's involved? Well, we've got Nehemiah, the governor, all right, then you've got, uh, you move down and look at verse 8 with me. It says, Maaziah, Bilgai, and Shemaiah, these were the priests. So everyone from verse 2 down through verse 9, we've got the priests also as God's leaders, as God's spokesmen, speaking on behalf of the people here. Verse 9, you bring in another group of leaders, uh, the Levites. All right, these were chosen of God. These were part of the structure of God. You have the Levites, verse 10, uh, their brethren, the brethren of the Levites. And then verse 5, uh, sorry, uh, the fifth group of people rather, but in verse 14, then it says the leaders of the people. And then all the way down uh, through verse 27, you have a bunch of different people. In this, you see all different kinds of leaders. You see national leaders, you see civic leaders, and you see religious leaders in there. And these people are at the helm of this community coming together, experiencing spiritual revival. And it's important to note that without godly leadership, that spiritual revival, would it have ever happened? Because at the helm of that spiritual revival was uh, were some of the, it actually started with, when you look at some of the brethren and some of these people, it was actually Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah's brother who saw what was going on in the nation of Israel and that the walls were not re- rebuilt and they were living in, sh- in shambles. Nehemiah's brother then went off and he went to Nehemiah, uh, where Nehemiah was serving the Persian king and he, he was serving him. He said, look, this is what's going on. People had a burden and they acted on it. And then Nehemiah came and he led the people. And he brought the leaders on board. And he brought in, uh, Ezra was already there. And spiritual reform, they continued to work with these people. We could look time and time again at how God worked through leaders to bring about change in this community. And notice here at this point, the, the, we're at the, the mountaintop experience. These leaders are here. And it's important for us because as we struggle in our lives and, and we want that, you know, that the, the mountaintop experience after our shackles are released and, and we see God's working in us, remember that God has placed us in the body of Christ and God has also placed us in a local church. And in this local church, there are leaders, there are people who point each of us back to Jesus Christ himself. And these are the voices, these are the people that we need in our lives in the times of plenty more than ever. 
Because it's often those times, those victorious times, where we're so excited and we're alive because of what God is doing. Those are some of the scariest times because do you know what we can do in those moments? We can easily take matters back into our own hands. And we say, all right, this is wonderful, God. What are we going to do next? Remember that whole, I will. We make a vow. We make this oath. We, 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 we go where our flesh wants to take us. God has given us this body, and he's given godly leaders to our church to be helpful, to help lead us continually down God's path. And there is great blessing in all of that. All of these leaders had influence over the people due to their position and the authority entrusted to them, both religiously and civically. And a history was already established between the people of Israel and all of these leaders, and even Nehemiah. Remember back in chapter 5, Nehemiah had to get on to them. There was actual correction of what was going on. That was actually part of where spiritual revival started way back when. And then later on, Nehemiah said, you know what? We haven't had a census. Let's have a registry to see who are all these people that have come back out of exile. Who's here? What's God working with? Again, that was important for the nation of Israel because they entered into those covenants based on their nationality, based off of their genealogies. And then chapters 8 and 9, there was great spiritual reform going on. Again, I'm reminded, and we see we have to walk away from passages like this, seeing the idea of of what many today called top-down leadership. What would that mean, top-down leadership? Well, it means it starts at the top and it works down. You have leaders, you have people who who have been given authority, who have been entrusted with great responsibility. It must always first begin in their heart, with their walk, their uh, submission to the will and the ways of God. And from there, as God is working in a leader's life, he is able to humbly lead and serve his people and point them and lead them, come alongside them and shepherd them back towards the plans and the purposes of God. And as the leader affects those people, now the people are doing that to their children and their homes. And this is the breeding grounds for godliness, a godly nation, as we see in in the book of Nehemiah. But for us, a godly body, a godly testimony to the world of God working his goodness in our church. God values order and structure, um, you could even look over in chapter 9, verse 22. I won't have you look there, but just uh, it, it talks about, remember when they were doing that, that big spiritual prayer and they were rehearsing their history to God, uh, they say, moreover, God gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts. It's funny, God's talking about uh, their, their history, they're rehearsing their national history back to God. And they're saying, you know, we were in the wilderness, then you brought us into this beautiful land that you promised. And as we started taking dominion over all of these other nations, do you know what God had them do? Divide it up into sections and decent and order. And he, he brought chaos and he brought leadership structure right built into the, the very framework of the nation of Israel. He did it religiously, and he also did it uh, civically for that. 
And we'd be remiss not to bring out an idea that the Apostle Paul brings out, and this is to directly step on Pastor Kern's toes, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where he's been preaching now, uh, we kind of get to the, the pinnacle. Now, we all know that one of the most exciting part of the, of the book of 1 Corinthians is when we get into chapter 15, and what does Paul teach us in 1 Corinthians 15? He talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's like everything Paul had been leading up to. But before he gets to that, he kind of ties up in a bow everything that he'd been talking about before that's leading him to the, hey, you're alive again in Jesus Christ. And he concludes all of the riffraff that he had been dealing with from chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, with all of the chaos that had been going on. And he summarizes it with this one statement. He says, let all things be done decently and in order. It's important for us to see these these principles and the structures of God. There's a way things work, and there's a way that God works things out. We see it in the body of Christ today, and it's just how the world was designed to work. And we see that at play in passages like this. The order, the structure, God working through the leadership of that. God values order and structure. One way is through leadership. Now, the second thing, we have all these specific leaders. But then I want to say it goes beyond all of the the leaders. These people had a name. They were known by name to, to all. They had special positions. But then there's always the people that they lead, right? There's the everyone else. And I would venture to say that that is the majority, right? Everybody, the the group, not all, are called to be leaders. And if you're in Nehemiah chapter 10 still, now we get to verse 28, and we see this second group of people, this second uh, part of the community. And it says this, Now the rest of the people the priests, the Levites. Now, hold on a minute. Didn't we have priests called out up in verse 8? And Levites were called out in verse 9. Why are they brought out again here? Well, simple understanding, simple thing for us to, to notice here is that even among the leaders, and priests were leaders, there were then leaders among the leaders of Israel. We have the priests who were serving God and they lead God. But among those priests, there were those that stood ahead and that they led the leaders. And so that's what we see early on in, in the, in the chapter there. And again, we come down to verse 28. So we have the, the people, the priests, the Levites. And now added to that, we have the gatekeepers and the singers. I love that they're included in there. And then the Nethanim, uh, again, the, we could call back to chapter 7. I think these guys are mentioned again. These were just servants laid out by God, servants to the Levites. So these people are, are on board. They're all present. And notice it's not just the people that you'd expect. It's not just the spiritual uh, lay leaders. Because what's listed next? And all those who had separated themselves from the people of the lands unto the law of God. Their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding. 
man, this was a big shindig. We've, we've already talked about this when the, this spiritual revival started and everybody stood on day's end and there was like a Bible revival conference going on and where they would stand from, uh, from morning to noon every day and they would teach God's word and wow, it, it was happening. We see this other, this, again, this culminating effect happening together. And what I want us to derive from this idea here is that God provides through the practical relationships of community. We saw that the, the, the leaders were important in all of this, but the everyone else is just as important. The fact of relationships and people working with one another. <clears throat> These individuals exerted influence among and with the people due to their own personal testimony and walk with God. Notice here it described them as all those who had separated themselves. This indicates a volitional, personal submission of the will. These people were allowing God to do something in their life, and they willingly submitted to it. They wanted to be there. And you know what? That spreads like wildfire. That spreads, and that makes a statement to others. I've described it this way before, and I rejoice, and I praise us because we are a singing church. You know that? I hear your singing, and it's, it's so beautiful. When we sing to the Lord, we're also mutually encouraging one another. We're singing one another because, let's face it, some of us men, we'd rather just... And you know, really, maybe not make uh, a a big thing. We're we're not. I'm not a singer. You know, uh, go Packers, right? That's that's not what we're about. But yet, we come together, and I look over here, and I see that man. Man, that's a man's man right there. That guy, I can see. I've seen what the guy has built with his hands before. I have a lot of respect for him. You know what? Or I look at that, I look at that woman over there and I see how she, she, she carries so much weight on her shoulders. She does so much for her family. And there's a lot of burdens on her heart. But I'm looking at her and I'm looking at him. And you know what they're doing? They're giving their all to the Lord and they're singing and they're praising and they're rehearsing God's truth out loud into him and they're worshiping the Lord. And you know what that does for me? It says, wow, if they can do it, I can do it. I can sing the Lord. I know I'm not a singer, but I I can get involved. There's this mutual one another that happens just by gathering together. And each of us submitting to the Lord with the things that he has, that he's clearly laid out for us from his word. But that impacts, and we are. we connect with one another and it propels each of us to further godliness, to further submission to God because we see God working in others' lives. And oh yeah, God's working in my life as well. The beauty of these relationships and community. Now something that's really special and it just brings this point home right in your face is look with me in verse 29. 
It says all of these groups of people, we already see how important it is that, you know, they had submitted to the Lord and, and that has this kind of self-fulfilling, like a snowball, right? Picking steam, getting bigger, more people joining on and the snowball gets bigger. That's what happens in, in spiritual revival. But verse 29 says, these joined with their brethren, their nobles. Okay, what's interesting about this is joined, it's just kind of like, yeah, hey, we got together, we did a thing, right? But the language here is much stronger, it's much more picturesque for us, and in, in, in the way that it's, it's listed, there's a causative nature of it. So normally this, this word, in, and I'll say that the, the translation here of joined is actually pretty uncommon. This word is not often translated as, as joined. Normally, it actually has the idea of to be strong. All right? Well, that's nice. That already takes a little bit better picture for us, that these people gathering together, they're, they're strong with one another, and here they are ready to commit to the Lord. But it's not just the idea of being Strong. It's not a state of being. There is actually a causative nature and a causative aspect to this. So it now captures the idea of being made strong. They made strong, or they made, uh, they brought strength, they displayed strength together. So not just I was strong, but I'm making it strong. They were, there's an active participation and with a result in mind. And I love that idea that's brought out here because, again, as we seek the Lord and continue in godliness and Christ-likeness, as I follow the Lord in that path, and we gather together, and you see what God is doing in my life, I submit to him, and as we join together in community, there's an impact not only in my own life, but there's an impact in the community around me. And even those that aren't part of the community, they see what's going on. And the Lord uses that because I want to be part of something. I want to be part of that. That's wonderful. It, it, that's the God of the Bible. Sign me up. That's, that's what I want to be uh, part of. And the thing is, we miss out on all of that when we neglect the gathering of ourselves together. And so the beauty of the community that God has given us, he works through just these practical relationships that we have as part of God's community universally and locally right here. You have a part to play in God's grand design. What you do matters and it impacts others for him. So here we, we want to note that heart change was demonstrated as a community. You know, it is great. I, you know, I, I think about these, these, op, these moments that I've had in my life, the, the mountaintops and, you know, where I'm tempted to, Lord, never a pizza again, you know, because of, of what I've experienced. Where I have been tempted and where I have personally failed most often in my life is because God is working and it's exciting and I'm here. You know, I, I am growing and changing, but I haven't always submitted myself to the working of God in other people, all right, through community. Kind of that whole idea of no man is an 
island, but yet we can tend to wander that direction. And so in times of spiritual renewal, let us all intention and be purposeful to seek one another uh, because God will produce, God uses the balance of people to help smooth out the not theoretic ups and downs of, this is great, oh my goodness, I've sinned and I'm horrible again. God uses the body to mature us and bring out that steady, balanced steadfastness in himself. Uh, This body of Christ has helped to produce more steady fastness in my life than any other assembly I've ever been part of in my life. What God is doing in our church is special and unique, and I'm so thankful for each one of you. Heart change is demonstrated as a community. Next, we move on, and heart change was demonstrated through a public commitment to obedience. So we'll actually look at their commitment that they, that they made here. Heart change was demonstrated through a public commitment to obedience. All right, and, and we saw that in verse 29. Remember, they entered into a curse and an oath. All right, very strong language with what they did there. But what was that about? Well, it was to walk in God's law that was given to Moses, the servant of God. So to walk in the law, to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord, and uh, to also observe uh, all his ordinances and his statutes. If you've ever given any attention any amount of time to the law of Moses, you're going to find out it's laws, it's ordinances, it's statutes. There's nothing it doesn't touch, and it's a lot. It's heavy. It's burdensome for them. But they, with a renewed uh, spiritual mindset, they, they said, hey, we're going to do it all. Now, is that anything new for them? Was that new information? Or were they just committing to what they had already committed to in the past? They referenced that we will do the law of Moses. Uh, we're going to walk in God's law. Well, their ancestors, generations before, when Moses gave them the law. Do you remember what the nation of Israel did at that point? All these things that you've given to us, we will do. As a nation, they had already walked into this oath of this commitment of, hey, we're going to do this. And so this generation is saying, hey, we're going to do the same thing. Before we go further in the passage, I want us to answer this question that's probably dancing in your mind. We've already alluded to it, but it's this. Should we do the same as Israel in this situation and make an oath? Take it even further. Make a curse. Well, Numbers chapter 30, we read it. I wanted you to read the whole thing because it's heavy and it offers strong caution and warning about these sorts of things. Yet time and time again, the nation of Israel did enter into uh, agreements like this with the Lord. Because of the possible judgment of God, these things were not to be considered lightly. Other warnings include Matthew chapter 5 and and James chapter 5 also uh, hints at this and it summarizes it. And I'll just say it this way. The Lord 
summarized these statements on oath, and he said, be careful about all of these, these things. And he said, let your yes be yes, and your no, let it be a no. The Apostle Paul also echoes that out in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you have time, I'm not, for time's sake, I'm not going to look at it. But you could also look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 2 through 7. There's also good warning and caution about be careful the, those rash things that we throw out of our, out of our, our, our mouths, out of our hearts, and all of these things. <clears throat> but with all of these warnings and the, the direct understanding that I believe is, is trans-dispensational, of, if, if you say you're going to do it, do it. There's no need to drag the Lord into this and make, make a, a, this oath and this, this curse statement. If you're going to do it, do it. If you're not going to do it, don't do it. Be of integrity and keep your word with that. It's questionable and debatable if the people at this time should have done this. For the believer today vows an oath such as this, while noble and often sincere, they tend to place God's children, and we all have the unrestrained access that we have available through Jesus Christ. I mean, unrestrained access, all power, to the tune that God says uh, he can do and he will do above all that we ask or think. All of that unrestrained power of Jesus Christ. And when we make these vows, when we take and we make an oath such of these things, it automatically places us on the shaky ground and within the restriction of self-will, of self-guided efforts, which is 100% contrary to the ways of God, the grace of God, which is how God is operating today. It takes it away from, Lord, work in me, to I will. We were just talking about that in Sunday school this morning. You know, Satan's of, I will. Satan said the lie, the serpent said the lie of, uh, you will be like God. I will be like God. I will rule. And we take the ownership, we, we, we take, we supplant the throne of our, of, that belongs to God, and we take it for ourselves. And we say, I'm in control here, I've got this, I will never do that again. And grace operates differently. God's grace motivates us to humbly submit to him and allow him to will and to do of his good pleasure in our lives. Well, then how then do we continue in a passage like this? How do we learn from it and make an application for something that I personally do not believe is directly relevant or applicable to us? Well, let's drop upon principles that are universal in their nature. I believe they're trans-dispensational truths. That means things that have applied no matter what God has revealed to mankind at that time. And they're about who God is, God's nature, God's character, my nature, and my response to God. As such, I'm going to refer to the heart of the people that's expressed in this passage uh, to, to obey God, rather than how they expressed it in taking an oath and a curse. So as we look at this, this demonstration of uh, public commitment to obey, we're going to look at the desire that they had to obey. And, and we'll look at the virtues that are there of 
Of course God wants us to obey. And what's in that for us? So moving on, we see here that first, the people's desire aligned with truth. Okay? What we want to see here is in verse 29, uh, when they, they made this commitment, they were trying to do the thing. They, they weren't coming along and saying, you know what? We're going to do something completely different than what God ever told us to do. I mean, they were aligning it. What were they supposed to do? They were supposed to follow all that God had commanded through Moses, the law, and the prophets. They were supposed to submit to that. Now, so they're saying, hey, we're going to do this, and we're going to do this God's way. That is according to truth. And I, I encourage you, as a cross-reference, look over to, uh, not now, but just take it in your notes, Psalm chapter 26, verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> and it talks about the desire of, of uh, walking and in integrity before the Lord. <clears throat> and walking in truth in all of your ways. But in the context of that, what sets that up of, I will walk in your truth in all things, the psalmist says this, for your loving kindness is before my eyes. If you think back to me with what we saw in Nehemiah chapter 9, Remember, we looked at the pronouns that they were using of, you know, um, we did this, we did this, they did this, our ancestors did this. But that pronoun change was mighty and impactful. What was it? But you, oh God, you, they turned their heart back to what God was doing, what he did, who he was, they looked back to him. And again, this, this reference in Psalm brings out the idea of who God is, his loving kindness. This is one of the hallmarks of God in the Old Testament, his mercy. It's his loving kindness before his eyes. That was motivating their walk in the truth. <clears throat> and so for us, as we align ourselves with the truth, Whenever God is working and we want to move on, of course, it is going to be rooted and grounded in God's will. And we see that directly through God's word. That's why, again, community, God's gifted us the body. And part of our job is to be a pillar and ground of the truth. Where we teach, we lead, we encourage back to God's word for what his will is for our lives. The people's desire aligned with truth. Next, the people's desire was comprehensive. Notice when they said, we will do, uh, we will walk in God's law, observe and do all the commandments of the Lord and his ordinances. It's that little word that's easy to be missed, right? We'll do it all, Lord. It's not just the whole counsel of God. It's not just, Lord, everything you say will do. But there's also the whole person wrapped up in the idea. Whole person worship. Psalm 119, 68 and 69 says, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. Again, there's an appeal to God's nature, God's character. You are good and you do good. Teach me all of this. And not just I'll do everything, but what I do, I will do with my whole heart. 
when it comes to moving forward and seeking that desire, committing to change, God wants our heart above all else. Whole person worship. That's what we get into Romans chapter 12. And finally, the last thing we see here, the people's desire was specific to their context. The people's desire was specific to their context. For the rest of the chapter, he gets in and they line out a couple things. They committed to do all the law, didn't they? Well, where can we read the law set out for us? Well, we can see it written in the book of, well, we see portions of it in Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Leviticus. We see all these aspects. I mean, it was massive how big this thing was. And they committed to do it all, but yet there were pieces of it that bubbled to the surface to say, this is most important. This is important to us. Among those things would be marriage practices. They were intermarrying with pagans, and they're committing that, no, we're going to hold our sons and our daughters from from going off and intermarrying with the pagans. We're going to honor God because God had always said to do that. But that rose to the surface because it had everything to do with protecting the lineage and uh passing the faith of the one true God of Israel from generation to generation. It also involved their Sabbath practices um, and uh, giving the land rest and forgiving debts. And then it also talks about worship practices as well. And the thing I just want you to really quickly notice about all of this here is that this was peculiar to them. This is this is where, okay, this was real in their life. They really did need to work at that. And, and these were important to them in their time, in their specific context. And this is where the Spirit of God does work in each of our hearts and each of our lives. Um, that as God is producing change and he's working in a corporate context, but God also is specific to our context. That's as an individual But then I also want to point out that as a church, as a body, we have a context. We live in a day and an age that has a specific set of needs that are different than 50 years ago. Let me qualify that statement. The need has always been for Jesus Christ to be preached and for all to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ is their Savior. That's always been the need. That is mankind's greatest need. But the context that ministers and pastors and churches uh, uh, bound themselves together with 50, 60, 70 years ago, that was a world that many would be sitting here on a Sunday morning in church with their families. And many uh, who did not know the Lord on the, on the streets would at least assent to, oh yeah, the, the good Lord upstairs, the man upstairs. Or there was a, enough Christian back pressure and understanding attached with morality and the world. That was the context that we did. Today, our body of Christ sits in a context that we walk out and chances are we can talk to somebody and we can ask them, do you know who Jesus Christ was? And there is more of an opportunity today than ever for them to not know who Christ was, not even have an idea. So the the needs and the commitments that we make as a church, the burdens that God places on our heart, remember it is 
for the specific need and burden of the hour for our context, because that's where God works. Uh, And again, I, I believe it's Oswald Chambers that said, let God be as original with others as he want, as you want him to be original with you. That is a very modernized, simplistic quote of what the, what the man said there. But this idea of God has a plan and purpose for us individually, corporately, and in the context. We are in a space, place, and time where God wants to use us and uh, to meet the needs and to point people to Jesus Christ. Let us allow him to do so. And let us be motivated not by, uh, I will, let's do this, where we, we, let's take the bull by the horns and let's just make this thing happen. But we follow God's plans. We submit to him, and as we submit to him, we submit to one another as we do. But we grow in those relationships. We grow in all of that. We grow in his truth, <clears throat> and we grow in our comprehensive whole heart worship of the Lord, allowing him to uh, work out change in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day. We love you. Again, uh, thank you for your goodness to us, the examples that we see in the Old Testament of of the nation of Israel. Uh, Lord, we recognize the specialness of this body here at Falls Bible Church. And uh, Lord, I pray for each of us that uh, the fellowship would grow sweeter, that the relationships would grow deeper, and Father, that we could spur one another on to uh, further godly living, further Christ-likeness, and Lord, the impact that that can have um, in the world. Lord, uh, pray for balance in each of our hearts and as a church that uh, we continue to to uh, just allow you to work that balance out and, and uh, protect us from the, the ups and downs that our flesh can take us through. Father, your grace, your Son is sufficient for all. Father, thank you for Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.